think the work of our generation, the work of our time is, is this work, bringing into our own contemplation, bringing into our conversations with others, the full spectrum of the way we all experience life today and all, all the challenges that we all invariably feel. Let's like, stop pretending that they're not there. That was Kent talking about the urgency for all of us, whether we have a mental illness or not, to look at our inner state, to be honest with ourselves and others about what's really going on. In this episode of Silent Superheroes, Kent digs deep into his reflections on his place in the world, how he relates to himself, to his children, to his business partners, and what it all means for his work, making organizations that show up with intention and purpose. On the way, we'll sit next to Kent on the day he realized life couldn't continue the way it was, and we'll hear about his mental health workout, weeping on his couch in the joy and pain of loss. Remember, Kent and I are just two people talking about our personal experiences with mental illness. If you have any questions or concerns about your mental health, or you're considering a change to your treatment plan, please consult with a trained medical professional. My name's James Pratt. I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. So welcome to Silent Superheroes. I am here today with my guest, Kent. Kent, welcome. Thanks, James. Super happy to be here. Thanks for having me. No worries. So I think it would be great, Kent, if you could start by giving us an intro to yourself. Who are you? What do you do? <laughs> That's a slippery question, as uh, it seems to be an ever-evolving thing. That's to say, my work of late has been looking at the utility and efficacy of all the stories I have about myself and about how the world is and who I am and, you know, noticing all the labels that we put on ourselves and the degree to which they're true or, and honoring or not. So your first question actually has me going, huh, what am I present to right now and how might I describe what I'm up to in the world without having it be this concrete label? Some people call that presence, living in the now, being in the now. So, so in, in any given now, what I'm up to in the world, my work has been to really integrate this sense of self so that that thing that I'm calling self shows up consistently as a father, as a partner, as a friend, as a colleague, as a business person. So yeah. it's not such an easy ask and answer question like, who are you? What do you do? So I could say perhaps you're somebody who is spending time considering who they are and how they show up in the world. Yeah. I mean, that, that, is, a, that is an ongoing, very active inquiry. What are the areas in which you are thinking about those different identities? Yeah. So the way I've been organizing this inquiry comes from the poet, author, speaker, David White, who's been incredibly influential in helping me understand my relationship to myself, my relationship to my work, and my relationship to others. He calls these relationships the three marriages. These three enduring commitments that we have, our marriage to ourself, which is, a, as we started the conversation, a very slippery, elusive thing. How does our relationship or how does our sense of self evolve in relation to others, be that a, a spouse, a parent, a child, a coworker, you know, all the important, the important relationship in our lives. And then the third component, what's our relationship with our work? As, as our work in the world seems to be a major thrust in how people identify themselves, it's certainly where we spend a significant amount of our waking time and attention and energy. And so therefore, the degree to which we have a healthy relationship with our work is a primary driver in the way we think about ourselves and our own okay. self-worth and what we bring home and into our social lives. As outlined by David White. Who do you consider yourself to be in each of those relationships? Yeah, great question. So let's start with self. The spiritual teacher Wei Wu Wei offers a perspective. Why am I unhappy? Because 99.9% of the time, the majority of things I think about, act on behalf of, is for myself. And there is none. The relationship with self is one that 
I hope to continue, like strangely enough, for that to dissolve, you know, and not have this separate small self that feels less than abandoned by, you know, all that stuff. So my relationship with self and my work in that particular compartment has been more disidentifying from all these beliefs and assumptions and narratives that I've either created in my own ruminations or that I've allowed to be imprinted upon me from parents, school, Mm -hmm. society. (laughs) So in that sense, that's the work I feel has been like really disidentifying at first, just acknowledging and understanding what are all these scripts and stories and beliefs that I have about myself and the degree to which any of them are true. (laughs) As we do this work in this domain, what that opens up for me in the domain of relationship with others is a far greater capacity to be empathetic, you know, really deeply connect with other people in a way that's not trying to serve some selfish motive. And it changes it shifts the the nature of the relationship with other to one of service and understanding and care versus what am i getting out of this deal so we talked about your relationship with self you talked about your relationship with others and that being a something you think of as service so in that other domain what's your relationship with work this has been the deepest inquiry my vocation my work for the last mm-hmm. 25 years has been really being a student of why and how people make choices around their work. What's it for? Am I choosing this because I love what the company does? Am I choosing this because of the money? Am I choosing this because of the title? Am I choosing it because it's close to my, whatever, because my friend's doing it, because my mom told me I should, Mm -hmm. like whatever. And that's evolved to just the deep study into the nature of the role of career and what the role of work plays in, in our overall life and how a company's way of seeing itself and a company's way of being, their culture, their sense of why they exist beyond a profit motive, but what they're really up to in society. The way we think about what our work ought be is a major question that a lot of people are entertaining. Sorry, I'm a little, I feel like I'm a little all over the place, but these three questions of self and relation Mm -hmm. to others and and where we choose to direct our attention for the majority of our time, which is what the pattern certainly has been in the Western world here. We wear it as a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. I worked 10 hours. I worked 12 hours. Mm -hmm. I didn't sleep last night. I'm so committed. How's that going? And how's that promoting individual well-being, relational well-being, and my ability to show up with any degree of efficacy in my work if we're continuing to just burn the candle and power through. If I were to put a label on you, which I'm going to do consciously, (laughs) (laughs) what I've heard is that you are someone who spent their career trying to help people find more meaning in their work. Yeah, as I was struggling with the same pursuit. (laughs) (laughs) And it's through that, in fact, that we met, right? I share a passion for helping people have a better experience in work. Yeah, Yeah. we did meet that way. That's funny. Through our good friend, Josh Dykstra. (laughs) Josh Dykstra. Josh Allen Dykstra. That's right, yeah. You were talking about the nature of work and Mm -hmm. how in the Western world in particular, we have this badge of honor of like, I'm working 10 hours a day. Well, I'm working 12 hours a day. I'm working six. I'm crushing it. You know what I mean? Because I don't do anything except work. And... I know for me, that has led me into a bad place in the past. And I think, you know, that has exacerbated some of my mental illness. I'm wondering what your journey with overwork has been and how that's contributed to your own state of mental health. Yeah. So I can say, first off, unequivocally, that this expectation, which feels both intrinsically generated, like an expectation that I put on myself, as well as extrinsically, like I feel it's an expectation of the company, the world, society's expectation of what work ought to be. And so these two forces, as one who's always held himself, you know, with a degree of achievement orientation, be it scholastically, athletically, musically, relationally, vocationally, you know, I've, I've always had a strong intrinsic drive to excel, to achieve, to be excellence. And at a point in time, that has diminishing returns when put into to kind of overdrive that perpetuate, at least for me, it perpetuated a sense of never enoughness. If every time I perform, be it in a meeting, be it in an athletic event, be it on a date, be it whatever, uh-huh. yeah. if I'm not bettering my previous outing, I'm falling behind. 
it's not good enough. I need to work harder. And then just the, the competitive nature of the world as, as we move out there, you know, who, who gets ahead, the early bird gets the work, right? We have all these imprints, which are also true. Like you, you do need to, to work hard. And this is the paradox of the situation where I'm coming to understand is we are simultaneously enough as is, and there's unending amounts to learn. I think it's about the expectations that you put on yourself for yeah. learning. You know, if yes. your expectation is I'll learn everything, I'll learn everything I need to know, that will obviously never happen. Right. <laughs> but if if the expectation is I'll learn what, what I need to know and when things come to me, then that in my experience can be satisfying. Yeah. We we were on this thread of the sort of our emotional health with respect to the striving, the working hard, the not enoughness or that the yeah. need to you know, continuous improvements, all this language that exists in our conversation. We subscribe to an up or out yeah. philosophy of talent management. Yes. Well, what's that mean? Yeah. Well, that means you either up your performance every day mm-hmm. so that you're continuing to get promoted, continuing to add more value, or you're fired. That works directly against what we want people to feel in a work environment, which is I'm enough and what I have to say and right. offer and do actually makes a positive contribution and it matters. We have to carefully define what we means there. Because I right. think you meant we, you and me. Yeah. If you meant we businesses in general, then I'd have to strongly disagree with you because what businesses in general want is that you create ever more value for the company. Yes. And that value is often equated with an amount of time that you spend, a perception of how, as you said earlier, how committed you appear to be to the cause. Those can be very dangerous conditions to be in. Yeah. We're we're seeing this show up broadly and prominently in our current reality of the state of things. I think we both understand the statistics or have seen these statistics around you know, people's relationship with work and the degree to which people have a healthy relationship with work. It's a small fraction of the population. When we look at depression as the leading cause of disability on the planet. Wow, I didn't know that. The World Health Organization has ah. cited depression as the leading cause of all disability on the planet. And, I, and so I just asked the question, what's the relationship between or among these factors of we spent, we as humans from the age of early 20s to whatever, call it mid 60s, 70, whatever, this major thrust epoch of our life is centered around work. How do we pay the bills? How do we take care of the family? How do we meet our survival needs? We do this through our work. Great. The degree to which we're checking those boxes, cool. I've got my house, shelter, I've got food, I've got clothing. Survival needs are met. So what's beyond that? Well, beyond that, we step into this realm of up or out. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Show your commitment. All this rhetoric around performance, and it's largely organized around a profit motive, which just keeps the scarcity mindset fear of not being able to provide financially for my family, for myself, in this seemingly, this, this demand for faster, grow faster, go faster, it doesn't allow for depth of learning and depth of understanding. And so we have a whole generation, I think, of people that have been you know, primarily motivated by climbing some hierarchy, by getting more faster get promoted faster, get more money faster, get all this stuff faster. And like the depth of practice and rigor in any of these particular domains or dimensions, be them vocationally or relationally or emotionally in my my way of relating to myself. And what if I'm not progressing at some astronomical pace? We're facing an epidemic of mental health and, and like sanity, like what's, what's mm-hmm. really sustainable and what's really enough. You know, the suicide rates are just staggering. I've got friends that have teenage kids that are afflicted by this and they're just, they're like in, you know, my kids are one in three. Oh my gosh, there's, there's evidence of massive anxiety and depression and not enoughness running rampant in middle school. It's not even at work yet. 
And these organizations aren't equipped to deal with it. I was reading recently about some of America's top colleges that take an approach of, oh, you came and you said that you have depression or even that you've been suicidal. So the best thing for you would be if we take you out of the kind of population of you know, connections to your, stu- to your student friends, we send you home on a leave of absence that you don't really want. And then when you're in inverted commas kind of better, uh, you know, less of a risk to yourself and others, then you can come, you can come back. And of course, that rejection, yeah, from further. Something, further rejection from something you've worked for the first 20 years of your life to get to is really hard to take. And that brings us full circle to that's kind of why we're having this conversation, hey. right? To help people yeah. out there, you know, both those of us who, who manage a, a mental illness or manage their mental health in some way, hopefully to bring some connection to those people, help them know they're not the only person out there who are dealing with anxiety or depression or PTSD or whatever it might be in yeah. work. But hopefully also to those people who work, you know, as I do in the HR profession, people who work trying to build organizations to help them think about how to build, build organizations that allow people to manage their mental health and still be successful and not feel like the option is out, out of up and out. Yeah. My attention just locked on to something I heard you say around those of us that struggle with mental health. And I'm like, well, everybody does. If we're not paying attention to our mental health, to our physical health, to our relational health, these are practices for everybody. No one escapes. If they're really awake and really like plugged in and engaged, all of these dimensions of our life require attention and nurturing and care and exercise and rest, right? So to your point about the way we attend in some institutions today, be them educational or, or work, let's take you out, label you further as broken or a problem and send you somewhere until you can get better, which only further prevents other people from daring to say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit right. because I don't want to be sent home. Right. I don't want to be, right? Like, I don't want to be labeled can't handle it. It's an epidemic. Take a minute and think about who you are at work, with friends, with your family, or when you're doing your favorite activity. What are the expectations of who you should be in each of those situations? Too often, we create different identities, all tuned to our perception of who we think we need to be. When we're at work, we're often operating in systems and with expectations in place that tell you who you should be. Check the boxes in a performance review and you get a reward. Speak up and get labeled as difficult. The conflicting demands of work you, family you, friend you, free time you, make it hard to stay in touch with what's most important, which is just you. And juggling all those identities can take its toll on your mental health. So what put you on this journey where you are thinking about how you manage your mental health uh, that brought your attention to, I need to make that a priority? It wasn't like a, well, it wasn't, it wasn't. There was a moment where I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder and I was actively seeking psychotherapy, psychiatry, pharmaceutical intervention, mindfulness practice. Like I I felt like, holy shit, I'm in crisis. As, as I noticed one day, I could not get my car to take me to work. So I want to just put place a caveat in here. Like anything that I offer about my experiences, it's not about a particular person being good or bad or a particular company being good or bad. Because I, I mean, I truly believe in my heart of hearts that every boss I've had, every person I've worked with and for, they're, they're good people. I was the head of HR for a company. And as such, I take deep responsibility for the well-being of the people that choose to work there. And the organization has a way of being. They run lean. They expect a lot from people. And what you get as an output of operating a system that way is massive burnout and a massive sense of not enoughness. The antidote for not doing a good enough job is work harder. I felt that that's just not a sustainable way to operate a business, yet I'm there as an agent of this organization. I hold myself as a steward of the culture. I hold myself as a steward of 
how we get people to perform and show up and the degree to which they're engaged and the nature of the profession. As an HR executive, you know, people aren't setting up meetings with me to tell, to tell me about how great everything's going. And it's largely more around who's the problem, what's broken, what needs yeah. to get fixed. Who are we choosing to be part of this group or that group? Or, right? It's a lot of labeling. It's a lot of judging. 25 years of this. Who gets hired? How much leave do we give them? All of this stuff being steeped in these conversations that over decades take a toll. And so I'm on the side of a road. It's raining in Los Angeles and I can't get to work because I can't hold this pain anymore. It was my pain, yes, but it was also the pain of the system that I was being asked to uphold and create systems and processes and experiences and interventions that keep this system humming and printing cash. And I am like face to face with a fundamental disagreement. And this is how it has to be. This is what work is. And just suck it up and power through. And if you can't hack it, there's a hundred other people in line hoping that they can get a job. (laughs) Like, it's nuts. And so I'm on the side of the road and I'm asking this question, to be or not to be. Call it suicidal ideation. or, or Like, I understood for the first time in a palpable way how nice it would be to not have to deal with all this and welcome the sweet relief of death. Yeah. Like almost yearn for it just to be over. When one reaches this point, that's an interesting point. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't it? (laughs) Because at that moment, nothing matters and everything's up for question and up for grabs. And I can't just be a victim to the circumstances that have put me in this way, I have to take some kind of responsibility. If I'm going to choose to persist, then I also have to choose to persist in a way that I'm taking specific action on behalf of my well-being. That was a real opening for you. Massive opening. So what did you do to walk through the, walk through yeah, the opening? So, walk through the so what became really clear to me was I can't continue in this way. And look, I wasn't doing the job that the company wanted me to do. So not... I'm right and they're wrong, or they're right and I'm wrong, it became very clear that I was not going to be successful being true to myself in that system. So even though I was the sole breadwinner for my family, I had a almost two-year-old daughter. We were pregnant with our next kid who was due to be born in two months. And I'm in a marriage that's actually not working either. And I say... Well, first things first, I need to leave this job. And so I went into work the next Monday. I slept on it over the weekend and I said, I can't do this anymore. And they didn't want me there anyway. I wasn't subscribing to the system. I wasn't performing to that system's expectations. And I wasn't willing to compromise my sense of morals, my sense of values, my beliefs about what work should be. And you decided I can't exist in this system anymore, this system of work. You did something courageous that I think many people would not be able to do, which is to make a very swift decision about, I need to operate in a different space. This work environment is not good for me. And you walked in there Monday morning and I'm almost thinking about like Clark Kent, you walk in and you tear your shirt open, your glasses come off and like, here I am. What happened next? This is so great. And this is where I love telling this part of the story too, is I was met with kindness and compassion from my employer. We worked out a transition plan that took into consideration all kinds of factors for me, for the company, for the team, for finances, for healthcare, right? So we were very human in the way we attended to this very human situation. What comes up for me in that just now is... It's great that we can take care of people when they hit crisis. And wouldn't it be better if if we could create a way of being that would prevent the crisis? Because the company went back, they handled me very respectfully and then continues to operate in In its way. In the same way, yeah. While we're on that topic, it's great that you're treated in a very human way. And I know that you were the HR director, so you were probably a more senior member of the company where the, in inverted commas, important decisions get made. I'm wondering how different your experience would be if you had been a frontline employee who's 25 years old who walks in and says, I need to quit because you know my mental health is, is suffering. I just yeah. wonder what that experience, how that experience would have been different. Yeah, well, it is different. 
so this is where it gets interesting. And this is where, you know, someone who holds that role within a, in an organization, how do we make decisions around how to treat people when the policy doesn't, can't solve for everything. And, and so what's fair. And I think what fair is, is to have is not treat everyone same in what the benefit is, but rather treat people same and being in the conversation to find a solution that honors the varying considerations and, and be really thoughtful in the way that we're speaking and working together, not just forcing a solution onto someone and saying, well, this is our policy. Sorry. We you know, have an EAP, how, call that. That's helpful. Totally. Yeah. It's yeah. being more human yeah. in the conversation and trying to find as best we can, knowing that you can't solve everything all the time, right? So there, there are limits to what we can do, but but there's not a limit in our ability to be compassionate and be in open conversation and taking the time through dialogue, arrive at some solution where people understand and can find their way forward. And that takes time. And so that the expediency becomes frustrating for a skillful practitioner who's trying to really find the and and honor the different stakeholders in this particular situation. Yeah, I've had conversations in the past with members of an executive team and they're you know, laying somebody off or somebody's getting fired from their team. And I try and help them understand from a pure needs point of view. It's like, you are yanking the rug out from under this person. Like they walked in this morning expecting to get a paycheck at the end of the month and next month. And like, you are literally taking away their sense of safety and security. Yes. And framing it in that human way, I've had success with helping an executive and manager think through like, yeah, maybe we should offer this person some bridge. And particularly in the, in, the, in the United States, in so many companies where you lose your job, you lose your health care immediately. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's the COBRA you know, act. And so you can continue with your health coverage, but you have to pay for it. And by the way, paying for a company level plan is not cheap. But that is a place where I've been able to get people into the human space. It's like, yeah, you know what? It's going to cost us some amount of thousands of dollars. But do you know what? We're doing the right thing. Like we're treating people right. You know, I would like to just spend a couple minutes sharing about the work that I'm up to right now, because this is a prominent topic of this conversation. And the work that I'm engaged in right now really matters. And that is, I've been invited to come make a contribution to Gear Deli Chocolates, a company that's been around for 166 years. From what I can tell, a, a well-respected brand with a you know premium product that people love and you know, they're mindful in the way they make it. The work that we're doing with them right now started with a new brand slogan that they're offering, Ghirardelli Chocolate, making life a bite better. This mantra, if you will, of making life a bite better is a really beautiful example, I think, of a company that is coming into deep understanding of its role in the world that, tra- that includes a profit motive, but transcends that profit motive in the context of how, why do we exist and how are we existing in a way that actually makes life bite better for everybody who comes into contact with our entity, be that a Target or a Walmart or a Whole Foods or any of these distribution partners that offer this product, be it their own retail stores, their employees, be it the people that grow the cocoa beans. And right, it's beautiful. How, how can we in every moment show up in a way that's making life a bite better? And what a powerful organizing Mm. principle from which to move into the world. And I'm projecting that part of the work you're doing, you mentioned working with the executives, is helping them find the bite better in their lives. Absolutely. This is where Mm. we just were this past week was inviting them to either for the first time or continuing to dwell in this inquiry of what's my purpose and why why am I alive? What are my unique set of competencies and strengths and talents? What's my unique sense of what makes me feel strong and energized and a sense of vitality and enoughness? And how am I expressing those through my choice of showing up at this company every day? So what we're working on is this move of how do we help each person connect more deeply to that intrinsic motivation, that internal sense of enoughness in as much of a differentiated way that they can, because the more differentiated we understand ourselves and we can offer that into a conversation, we're adding more value. And so Deloitte just did a great, you know, their annual human capital trends research 
suggests that the number one challenge facing all corporations today is what they're calling the symphonic C-suite, recognizing that we need both differentiation of perspective and integration. And so like an orchestra, you've got all the different sections that are masterfully playing their differentiated instrument, but not over one another, not faster than the others, not slower than the others. And it's the job of the CEO or the conductor to bring and allow the space for all these differentiated sounds and textures to come into the conversation, but we organize them in a way that's very harmonious. This work in and of itself is making my life a bite better. So, so I'm just, I'm tickled to death to be able to, <laughs> uh, and so this is where I say, great. So all this bad stuff that happened in having to make this decision to leave this other organization, step into deeper into my own sense of purpose and the nature of the work that shows up is more aligned and more in tune with how I like to play my instrument. You know, this is where these silver lining moments, if we trust that what's happening is happening for us, not to us, and we practice being in this way, I'm finding this to be a really helpful antidote for my own proclivity for anxiety, for my own proclivity for depression and my own not enoughness is taking the time to really orient myself to what's happening through this lens of what it's happening for me if I am patient and look through this lens. I'm hearing that one of the things that's important to you, and I think this is also important to everyone, who is working with something like anxiety or depression is work that has meaning. And I know that seems so obvious to say, (laughs) but as a society, I feel like we've got so far away from doing work that's meaningful. And there's a lot of research out there that that supports that assertion that it's got to be a part of the rise in rates of anxiety and depression, certainly in the Western world, but it sounds like from, from some of the things you said earlier across the world. Yeah. One of the things that I talk about that I experience in my own experience and work in my coaching practice and in my organizational consulting practice is this not enough story. As part of the human condition, we all have this. And so how does that express itself feels like two sides of the same coin. The not enoughness coin on one side, how do I combat my feelings of not enough? Well, I puff up and I create all kinds of artificial labels, covers, stories, and I present myself more agentically in the world, more aggressively in the world as a way to keep this not enough vulnerable part of me safe. And and the more I do that, the more I feel phony and the more anxiety provoking it becomes because I'm realizing I'm not being me and how much energy it takes to continue to have put this false front on of bravery. On the other side of that coin is, is the shrinking and, and the continual diminishing of self and like, oh yeah, I'm not enough and kind of secluding into the background. And this is, this is where depression festers because oh, um, I really believe the not enoughness and I continue to shrink and shrink and shrink yeah. because I don't want to put myself out there because of course I'm going to get shut down and of course I'm going to be told I'm not enough and I'm stupid and so I eventually just shrivel up and die and this is where depression festers. You know, my, my, first, my first big corporate job, you know, I found myself in a small meeting with the CEO of a Fortune 150 company and a couple other very senior executives. And I was standing in this meeting in place of the then head of HR who couldn't be at the meeting. I was so scared. I was shitting myself scared to be in this room. And the CEO asked me a question. He's like, how you doing, Kent? I said something so stupid, like, I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. I have no fear. Like some stupid, like puffery thing. And then I like went into this charade of like trying to convince these people of how smart I was and how I deserved to be in there. All the while, massive anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because when will they figure out what I know to be true, which is I'm not good enough. (laughs) Right. Right. It's like a peacock just putting out their tail feathers. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. And what would have, and so that, you know, in, in retrospect, I'm like, gosh, well, what would, I wonder what would have happened if I went in with some humility and with some curiosity and, you know, just genuine gratitude and appreciation for having the opportunity to be in there and be in there as a learner, not as someone who's desperately trying to not show any vulnerability, what would have happened? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
Kent story feels very familiar to me. I quit a comfortable job when I realized who I was and who the company wanted me to be were two different things. And like Kent, quitting my job led me to doing work that has real meaning to me, helping people and companies thrive as an HR lead and a coach. But I know that Kent and I were lucky. We were both given time to find our next step. And for that, I'm grateful. And the fact, of course, that this treatment is noteworthy illustrates why work can so often be cruel. So many people are treated as dispensable cogs in the machine of profit. But there are companies out there, like Ghirardelli, waking up to the idea that they play a role in the world beyond profit. And that's got to be a good thing. Every now and then you hear a story like Kent's. Someone who realizes they need to change how they show up in the world, and they're able to do it successfully. So I wanted to ask Kent what words of wisdom he had for other people who might be making that journey. So you talked about the two responses, puffing up or, or withdrawing. Right, puffing yeah. up being anxiety, depression being with withdrawing. And those both coming from that sense of I'm not good enough. Like trying to be somebody else. Because then I'll be yeah. okay. Yeah. You know, I'll be okay when I'm a director. I'll be okay when I'm a VP. I'll be okay when I got like a CXO title. I really believe we all know that not to be true in our hearts. We were talking earlier about openings. An opening came for you, sat by the side of the street in, in LA. If humans know it to be true that there is more meaning in life than a title or an amount of money or a car or a particular house, and sometimes that truth is more evident than others, like, you know, you get these little kind of like you, you read a quote on the internet and you're like, oh yeah, God, wouldn't it be great if I could let go of my ego or something like that? What makes it so damn hard to like have those tiny openings and then walk through, turn them into a big opening? What makes that so difficult? The answer that's just smacking me right in the face at this moment is it's the art of paying attention. Mm. There's a beautiful body of work called appreciative inquiry. Somebody was telling me about this the other day. Dr. David Cooperrider, what he's found in his life's work is that what we look for, we find. And the words that we use to describe what we see when we're looking at the world actually create the world that we inhabit. And this is now being backed by neuroscience as they study neural pathways. If we see what's happening as a problem, and I continue to relate to what's happening as a problem, the neural pathway that continues to fire is that this is a problem. And so the more and more I exercise that way of seeing the words and the language and the thinking patterns that hold what's happening as a problem, the stronger that problem becomes. Just like any muscle, that, that's what's getting exercised and reinforced. If I can relate to what's happening from a place of appreciation, from a place of gratitude, and I can continue to work to see it this way and relate to it in this way. So I I use language to describe this phenomenon. Shit happens. Okay, great. Do we use that shit and continue to pile onto ourselves and others? Or do we use it as compost for our continued growth? And so in order to do that, one needs to look at what's happening, much like I was just describing before. Yes, it was a horrible, I had horrible suicidal depression and I, and I quit my job. How is this happening for me? Well, this gave me an opportunity to heal in so many different ways and to take personal responsibility for st- continuing to step in the direction of my ongoing healing, health, and well-being by reaching out to Josh Dykstra and saying, Josh, I love working with you. Because your body of work is in this same flow of appreciative inquiry and of positive psychology and taking a strengths-based approach to the way we're relating to what's happening. Therefore, this art of paying attention invites us to like really begin to exercise the rituals and practices that, that attend to the well-being of our state of mind. And so things that people hold as woo-woo and stupid, like gratitude practices, yeah. like loving compassion practices, like cool. So just notice that you're choosing to continue to exercise the muscles of scarcity and fear and things are a problem. Those are the muscles that are going to continually fire can't be any other way. What levers do I pull so that I can begin to experience myself and put myself in the path of these more resourceful states of mind where I'm not so overly influenced by 
social agenda, media, like it's all organized around not enoughness. You're not enough unless you have this car. You're not enough unless you look like this. You're not enough yeah. unless you have this house. You're not enough unless you make this amount of money. You're not enough unless you live in this neighborhood. You're not enough. You're not enough. You're not enough. You're not enough. And that, this is what we are bombarded with. And then we even do it to ourselves in social media as we look at our social media f- fields and all of our friends that are carefully curating their lived experience to make it look like it's fucking perfect. Absolutely. So the extent to which we can find the courage to step into real conversations and honor the fucked up nature of how things are today and how hard it is for everybody and our willingness to act in the ways that we feel are most beneficial to our own well-being and see what the outcome of those experiences are, whether it's medicinal therapy, psychotherapy, whatever it is, run the experiment, get your feedback and keep moving in a direction that allows one to spend more and more time in more resourceful states of okayness and enoughness. Sorry, that yeah. felt like a rant. No, it was good. I I only wish that people listening could have seen you through that because you were animated and passionate about everything that you just said. And it feels like this has been a hard-won set of realizations for you. You know this, James. You yeah. know this as well as I do. Mental health is a daily, sometimes hourly, sometimes second-by-second second vigilance and practice around the quality of the nature of my mind. I have to call you out and honor you beautifully, if you don't mind. You and I had a scheduled meeting a couple months ago, and you said to me very openly, very vulnerably, I'm not having a good day. Um, I I think you mentioned you had missed one of your tools, if it was medicine or whatever, but there, there was something that in your routine that didn't happen, and, and you realized that you were in a debilitated state and you honored yourself, you honored me and just spoke to it. It was a massive gift for me to see someone else just be so compassionate with themselves. So like, good on you, man. And these are the things we need to be able to do. I think we healthy need- boundaries. Renee, yeah. Renee Brown speaks to, yeah. you know, being vulnerable, but that doesn't mean being a total like, and not taking responsibility for the integrity of our container which you did, right? You said, hey, not a good day, vulnerable, and I'm setting a boundary. I'm going to like rein it in for the day. Honored. Like that's power. That's not weakness at all. And I know in that situation that if I give myself that time, I give myself that compassion, I swing out so much more quickly. What I'm seeing is that you have built lots of different muscles and you've tried lots of different things to build those muscles over time to help you manage your mental health? It's practice. I'll give you an example. Um, Much like if you're exercising your pectoral muscles, your biceps, your quads, whatever, right? We do exercises and those exercises intentionally create resistance and struggle and pain and discomfort. Like there's nothing necessarily fun or comfortable or enjoyable about exercising muscles and building muscles. So yesterday would have been my six-year wedding anniversary with my wife and our divorce is going to be final in two weeks. We have two little kids, a one and a half year old and a three and a half year old. And it was my weekend, my day yesterday with the kiddos. And so I, I was very aware and somber to the fact that, wow, six years ago, Christine and I got married with this intention of having a life together and starting a family together. And, you know, this was very present in my awareness yesterday. And I I was battling some depressive sentiments. All the while, I'm trying to be really present for my kids. And then their mom comes and picks them up in the afternoon. And literally, James, all of the oxygen felt like it was sucked out of me and out of the house as I watch my two kids get in the minivan with their mom and drive off to their other life that doesn't include me. And I wept and I sat in my living room, no radio, no television, no distractions. And I sat in the pain of loss and and I wept and wept and wept for an hour straight, feeling the depth of love that I have for my kids and the fact of how grateful I am that I got a chance to spend a whole day holed up in my house with my kids 
and the tears of joy that are now streaming down my face, yeah. in addition to the tears of pain about the story and the narrative about my life and my family that is dead. This is my workout, right? That's my time in the gym is to sit on my couch and feel the emotional power in that moment, both the, the challenging, difficult sides of that, as well as the beautiful gratitude. And they're both true and they, eat, they balance each other out. I think mental health has something to do with our emotional agility, our emotion, our capacity to yeah. be and with and hold and breathe through life's multitude of emotions, which is where all the juice is, man. Yeah. Like <laughs> that, that was a workout. And I feel stronger today to be able to have this conversation with you from having allowed myself to be in that workout and not go distract myself and avoid those feelings. And you're able to see those things as like, oh, that's an emotion. That's a storyline, right? That doesn't mean that like you can let go of it immediately, but at least you're able to see those things clearly. Yes. And this is where this tool of meditation you know, learning how to sit as the observer, this bigger self, the consciousness that, that animates us all. I can note, oh, that's anger, that's fear, that's yeah. depression, that's sadness, that's joy, that's love. And I notice the impermanence of them all, but that takes practice sitting in it. For so long, particularly in the Western world and particularly in the work world, we were told to shove all that stuff aside and just focus on the exterior Focus yeah. on your behaviors, focus on the systems, and if it's not working, do more of it and do it harder. And it just didn't honor the whole subjective side of reality. It's certainly not something that we just sweep under the rug and don't attend to, because this is where all this pathology comes from in our society today, yeah. the suicide rates as they are, and the depression rates as they are. And what is it you think society needs to know about depression? I don't think anyone's immune to it. I think everyone is susceptible to it. If we don't allow ourselves to feel sad and be okay with the human experience of sadness, we don't allow ourselves to feel hurt, to feel lost, to feel alone, to feel fear, giving people a sense of okayness to both acknowledge that we all have these feelings and emotions. Yeah. And the more we allow ourselves to experience them, the more it opens us up to experience the depth and beauty of all the favorable emotions in life of true joy and love and connectedness and empathy. And they need one another to define one another. These more challenging things because they both define and open up the possibility to the lighter side. That's beautifully said. In adult development, people speak to two different planes of development. There's this horizontal development, kind of the filling out of skills and competencies. And there's this vertical development, which speaks to our capacity to hold more complexity and more nuance and actually hold paradox. Harvard and, and Bob Keegan has a lot of research that suggests we plateau and kind of stay in this fixed mindset until a crisis, until mm -hmm. something like jars us where we're like, oh my gosh, like I've been living in this tightly woven narrative about myself and everyone else. Like, holy crap, what have I missed? And what am I asleep to? I think the work of our generation, the work of our time is, is this work, bringing into our own contemplation, bringing into our conversations with others, the full spectrum of the way we all experience life today and all, all the challenges that we all invariably feel. Let's like, stop pretending that they're not there. I'm going to give you the opportunity to go back in time, go sit in the car with <laughs> then Kent. I'm going to give you the opportunity to, to tell yourself something about what's coming. I'm feeling an emotional hit coming up. So I'm going to sit with that for a second and see what message is on the is riding the tears um, that I was feeling coming up. I'm deeply grateful that I have chosen to persist. My life matters. My work matters. My love in the world matters. And that doesn't mean it's not hard. That doesn't mean we're not going to have bad days. My capacity to, to develop resiliency and self-compassion and humility and gratitude, we're really just continuing to show up every day with a deep intention to just love and heal. The language that's on the tip of my tongue is right now is just keep going. You never know what 
magic might be right, right around the corner. Yeah. And it's the, the willingness and the ability to stay opens up gifts that we can't imagine. So I'm super thankful that, that I leaned into that possibility more than making a, an absolute irrevocable decision in the face of a temporary impermanent moment. I enjoyed so much watching your face as you went through that experience. And what people who are listening won't be able to see is just how you shifted into gratitude as you identified that as an impermanent moment. As they all are, you know. What I love about poetry and music is it has such a nice way of offering truth. And for whatever reason, this like Lenny Kravitz line is Mm -hmm. in my mind. Like It's all just a dream. We just want to be loved. And so our first step is to love ourselves for all of the, all of it, the mess, the challenges, the, the gifts that we all have. Like no one's free from just like this total expression of everything from God awful awkwardness and not knowing to brilliance and genius. And as we allow ourselves to love ourselves for who we are and like learn to listen to what we need to nurture ourselves because no one else, no, no one else really is going to. And so to expect a partner or a company or anyone else to provide that nurturance and sustenance to ourselves, maybe we need to re-examine that and feel permission to really give, our, give ourselves the nurturing that we need in our own enoughness. And if we yeah. start there, we can maybe see and offer that, extend that generosity to others more if we do it to our, with ourselves first. I feel like that is a beautiful way to to conclude our conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So Ken, I want to say thank you so much for your wisdom, your stories, the vulnerability that, that you've shown. And I know that this conversation will, will help people who are going through similar, similar experiences. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, man. What I find the gift in this and the, one of the gifts in your, in your work in this area is, is just having these conversations helps. And so thanks for giving me a, a safe place to share and feel heard and seen and allowing me to step into my own enoughness in, <laughs> in spite of all these, these, uh, these challenges. And really, like, good work on you, man. I'm so grateful that Josh and I connected us. And, yeah. and these are important conversations. And so thank you for carrying the torch and doing your work as well. It's a real pleasure for you, my friend. Thank you. So that's Kent's story. Coach, consultant, recently divorced dad, taking life day by day and moment by moment, examining his relationship to the world and his stories about it, using the joy and sadness he experiences as his life is going through transition, as his workout to strengthen the muscles that keep depression at bay. If you like what you've heard in today's episode, please leave us a review and a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Those reviews are the best way for other people to find this podcast. If you want to hear about new episodes as they're released, you can hit the subscribe button in your podcasting client, sign up for our newsletter at silentsuperheroes.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash silentsuperheroes. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255 or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash to help others find the silent superheroes podcast please leave a review on itunes or your favorite podcasting service